Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us in the house today and welcome to those joining us online. It's my privilege to be with you all and it's my prayer that we would come away from the service today, that we would walk out of these doors having experienced the life-giving and life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen in the house to that? There's a little bit of an echo on the mic if you could sort that out for us. As we go, but no worries. Church, this morning I'm excited for us to continue with our series, Revealing Jesus. Before we get started, though, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we come to you this morning in the glorious and mighty name of Jesus. We lift up your name and exalt you above everyone and everything else. Lord, we praise you for your revelatory nature because you make known all the things that we need to know through the love of the Holy Spirit. As your word says, your Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And to those who have an ear to hear and a heart to understand, you declare all things from the beginning to the end. So Lord, as we resume our study on the book of Revelation today, this book of the end times, we ask that you give us an ear to hear and a heart to understand what the Spirit says to the churches. And what that means for us individually, Lord, so that we can align ourselves with your perfect plan and reveal Jesus in every aspect of our lives. It remains our heart's desire to represent you and reflect your glory in the way you deserve. So, Lord, come and have your way in and through us today. Come and do the transformational work that that we cannot do on our own. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. 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 It looks like I'm going to be preaching in the dark this morning. <laughs> so church today, while we're sorting out some technical issues, we continue with, or should I say, resume our series Revealing Jesus. This series where we've been studying the incredible prophetic end-time book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We were lost in the series about two months ago, and in case you're wondering why we aren't just finishing the series off, and why we aren't in it every Sunday, what we need to keep in mind firstly is that this series, series would take us roughly a year to complete if I were to preach it every single Sunday. But secondly, because we will take breaks in between as the Lord leads us to speak on certain pressing issues that we are facing in our world right now, in our culture, and how we as the church should be responding and contending for what we believe. We also have our preaching team that will be preparing sermons throughout the year as the Lord leads them to share messages that will prepare, strengthen, and encourage the body of Christ. So don't be discouraged if we don't preach on the series every Sunday. Be encouraged that the Lord knows where we're going and that He knows exactly what we need and when we need it. Amen? Amen. And yes, church, maybe we will still complete the series before the Lord returns. <laughs> Amen? I'm hoping so. <laughs> so church, just by way of quick recap, we have, have been journeying our way through the book of Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, and for the past 13 segments of the series, 
we have been immersed in this prophetic book, delving into the letters that Jesus dictated to these seven literal churches located in Asia Minor. Throughout our journey, we have seen how much or how each church represents a specific time period in church history, which is fascinating to learn about. Each of them have their own literal relevance and significance in that they existed in the first century. And we've also discovered, church number three, how each letter specifically provides spiritual application for our lives today and how we need to be in a state of readiness for the Lord's return. As we look at these letters, as we look at these churches, as we see the things that Jesus commends them for, rebukes them for, and the rewards that He gives them, we need to look at that as a mirror so that we can be prepared for the Lord's return, whether He returns tomorrow, a year from now, or a hundred years from now. Right? We need to be in a state of readiness. Today we conclude a pivotal segment of the church age as we continue to explore the characteristics of the church at Laodicea, which symbolizes the apostate stream of Christianity. This church, representing a lukewarm state, has abandoned the foundations of sound doctrine and denied the inerrancy and authority of God's Word. Instead of following the truth in Scripture, it succumbs to cultural pressures and promotes a distorted version of Christianity. The apostate church tolerates and even celebrates sin under the guise of love, detaching itself from the transformative power of the gospel. Why do I say that? Because it's the whole truth and nothing but the truth of the gospel that really sets people free from their sin. Amen? This type of church becomes more concerned with pleasing man than with pleasing God, and this deviation from the faith has led to the promotion of various unbiblical beliefs and practices within these liberal and apostate churches. Now remember, this all started in the early 1900s when European liberalism began having its influence in educational systems as well as in the church. Because men like Albert Ritchell, Adolf von Harnack, and Harry Emerson Fosdick started making statements that the Bible wasn't true in its totality, and that Christianity didn't need the tolerance of fundamentalists, but rather the, sorry, the intolerance of fundamentalists, but rather the tolerance of diverse beliefs practiced by enlightened modernists. And because they had great influences as theologians, they started spreading these false beliefs around Europe and other parts of the Western world. And that's why today you have two streams of evangelical churches. The Church of Philadelphia is a representation of the true church. The other stream, Laodicea, is a representation of the apostate church. And what is the distinction between the two? The true church is made up of genuine believers that are truly regenerated and are never ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true church believes in the inerrancy of the word of God and it continues to teach the whole counsel of God's word wrapped in grace with the love of Jesus Christ because it is more concerned about obeying the Lord and saving souls than it is about fitting into the culture. Right? But the apostate church is made up of pseudo 
or fake believers. It's a fake church that's Christian in name only, but not in faith and practice. It's the type of church that believes the world has evolved to such a degree that there's no need for an ancient book to guide it through this enlightened world and transitioning culture. And is therefore more concerned about fitting into the culture than it is about obeying the word of God or saving souls. An apostate is someone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ but doesn't possess eternal life. Because at one point in time they turn around and they abandon or forsake the faith in Christ that they once professed. Hear what I'm saying this morning. Peter describes them in his second epistle as a dog going back to its vomit or a pig that goes back after being washed to wallowing in the mud. They were never really regenerated. Now having said that, church, only God knows the heart. And it can be hard to tell the real from the false at times. Sometimes it's really in your face, but sometimes it can be hard to tell. But in Matthew chapter 13, we have what's called the kingdom parables. And in the kingdom parables, there's always the mixture of the true and the false, the wheat and the tares. There will always be wheat and tares in the church. The wheat represent true believers and the tares represent false and apostate believers. They look like Christians. They act like Christians. They even profess to be Christians, but they are tares and they will be separated when the Lord returns. The true church will be raptured when the trumpet call of God is sounded before the tribulation. And I'm going to build on that argument very soon when we get to chapter 4. But the apostate church will go through the tribulation. These two streams of churches are in existence today, and that's why I want us to spend some time together this morning looking at what it means to be a church and a Christian that is false in nature, that is apostate, so that in contrast, we can prepare ourselves correctly and be a bride that has its lamps trimmed in preparation for the bridegroom's return. Amen? But let's start by reading our main portion of Scripture for today. Go with me to Revelation chapter 3 in your Bibles, and let's pick it up from verse 13, verse 14. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and are neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel, to counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with ourselves that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's actually a really beautiful portion of Scripture, that. So church, as we've been doing through these seven letters, I want to give you a little bit of the historical background from a historical perspective or a literal perspective so we can get some context as to this particular church. Laodicea, which today is in modern Turkey, was founded by Antiochus II around 246 BC, and it was named after his wife, Laodice, right? hence the name Laodicea. It was a wealthy city. It was located along a major Asian trade route that was situated in the Lycus Valley. And it was known for a special breed of sheep that produced glossy black wool, which was used for the manufacturing of fine, expensive clothing. And all of this background that I'm going to give you this morning is important because Jesus is going to use some of this as a play on words in his rebuke of them. So keep this all in mind as we go through these verses. Laodicea was also well known for its medical school and medicine. The Laodicean physicians had developed a cell for curing eye diseases that is still used today in Awash, better known as boric acid. It was discovered right there in Laodicea. But despite its wealth in that it had invented and sold off these particular items that they were so well known for, despite that, fresh drinking water was, was scarce in Laodicea. And so what they had to do is they had to pipe it down into the city by way of an aqueduct from a city to the north called Hierapolis. You see, there was a hot spring in Hierapolis where they would then, by way of this aqueduct, bring water from the hot spring down from the north into Laodicea. And get this, by the time that it arrived in Laodicea, the water from the hot spring in Hierapolis, by the time that it got there, it was lukewarm. All of this is significant. The background is important to understand because the language Jesus uses here is intentional. So having said that, let's go back to the text to break down and uncover what Jesus says to the apostate church. He introduces himself here in verse 14. Have a look at it with me. With the titles of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. Now, when Jesus says of himself that he is the faithful or the amen, he simply means that his words are reliable and true. It is a word that indicates agreement or confirmation of something said. Amen can also be translated verily or I tell you the truth or, or so be it. At church, even when we pray, when we end by saying amen, we're just coming into agreement. We are saying yes we are saying, so be it. So Jesus identifying himself as the amen is saying that he is reliable and true, and we can agree with that statement. Amen? Amen. 
He also calls himself the faithful and true witness. Why? Because his testimony is accurate. It's an accurate revelation of God's will. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus was specifically called the faithful witness because of his reliable word. Uh, his reliable word. And then finally, he also refers to himself in this letter as the beginning of the creation of God, which basically means that all things were created by him and for him. Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. This is a unique title for Jesus in that it is a clear statement of his pre-existence. Because for him to be the one that is the beginning of the creation of God means that he existed before the creation of the world. right? And, and we know that, but this is a statement of his pre-existence before his birth in Bethlehem. Just in case anybody thinks that Jesus only came onto the scene when he was born in Bethlehem, right? He was there in the beginning with the Godhead. Amen. So quick question, church. How many commendations does Jesus have for this church? How many good things does he have to say about them? Not even one, right? Together with Sardis, Laodicea has no commendations from the Lord. Jesus has nothing good to say about this church, but he, he has some complaints. And I want us to go a bit deeper into this part because these are the type, or these are the signs of the type of church that you don't want to be a part of. And these are the signs of, the, of a Christian that is that if there is anything representative of you when we go through these verses, you need to repent and run hard after the Lord for the rest of your life. So the complaints start with the word lukewarm. Now, remember again, this is a play on words, right? Because the fresh hot spring water that was piped down from Hierapolis ended up being a lukewarm temperature by the time that it got to Laodicea. And let's be real for a moment. Things that are lukewarm are not typically that palatable, right? I mean, a nice hot cup of coffee is, is delicious. Wouldn't you agree? Just ask Shan, our resident coffee expert. Where's Shan? We should put up your hand, brother. Where are you? <laughs> Isn't it? Right? So a nice hot cup of coffee is really enjoyable. And so is a, a coffee freezer for that matter. You can have your coffee hot. You can have it cold. But a lukewarm cup of coffee, that's horrible. That's disgusting. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying that lukewarm Christians are to him. And I know that sounds pretty radical, right? That sounds quite extreme. But look again what he says here in verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Let me put it to you this way, church. If you're hot and you are on fire for the Lord, then great, keep on going. And if you're cold, well, at least God has got something to work with because you realize, listen, I'm nowhere near where I should be. But being in the middle, having one foot in the church and one foot in the world, being lukewarm is of no advantage to the kingdom, and God finds it distasteful. 
to the point that it makes him ill. Charles Spurgeon said of lukewarm Christians that their lives turn people away from Jesus. Have a look at what he says. They see a Christian who professes to believe that there is a hell, yet has tearless eyes and never seeks to snatch souls from going down into the pit. They see before them one who has to deal with eternal realities, yet he is but half awake. One who professes to have passed through a transformation so mysterious and wonderful that there must be, if it is true, a vast change in the outward life as a result of it, yet they see him very much like themselves. He may be morally consistent in his general behavior, but they see no energy in his religious character. Spurgeon says that the unbeliever is lulled to sleep by the lukewarm Christian, who is supposed to act as a siren to the sinner. In this way, great damage is done to the cause of truth, and God's name and God's honor are compromised. He concludes by saying, if you really are God's people, then serve Him with all your might. Serve God with all your might. And it was G. Campbell Morgan who said that lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. That's the first thing. Jesus rebukes them for their lukewarmness. And secondly, he rebukes them for being too self-sufficient. Now, why is that a bad thing, you may ask? Well, because church, when one is too self-sufficient, you're not God-dependent. You know, generally speaking, in our world today, we, we pride ourselves in being self-sufficient people. And while there is an admirable aspect to that, the downside to that is that if someone tends to be independent and prides himself or herself in not needing anybody, that is detrimental to that person because we all need relationship. And we especially need a relationship with the Lord. We need to be connected to Him. We need to be bonded to Him and dependent upon Him at all times. Amen? I was speaking to someone the other day, and we were talking about how in some first world countries, everything works so well, everything is so efficient, and people have become so comfortable and accumulated so much wealth and so much stuff that they don't need God anymore. They have become so self-sufficient that God is only, if ever, called upon in times of trouble. Right? Interestingly, what happened in, uh, to Laodicea, in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that just about destroyed the entire city. And so what happened is that the government stepped in with some stimulus money to help them rebuild the city. But the Laodiceans said, no, thank you. We have enough money ourselves because of the industry of this glossy black wool and the ourselves. They were excessively wealthy and, and said, we don't need government funds. We are going to rebuild our own city. And again, you know what? It's, it's an admirable thing to have this type of entrepreneurial spirit that the Laodiceans had. But what happened is that it infiltrated the church. So that when Jesus has given this letter to the church at Laodicea, the church had bought into that same kind of self-sufficiency. It was a pride thing. It was saying, we don't need anybody. We are the captain of our own ship. 
We are the masters of our own destiny. We are the architects of our own future, and we clearly don't need God either. And this is what God was calling them out on. You pride yourselves in being self-sufficient when in reality what you're saying is you don't need anybody and you especially don't need me. Church, you know what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 and 8? It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But look at what it says in verse 7. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Amen, somebody. So Jesus calls them out for the self-sufficient spirit. And look again at what he says to them in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. In fact, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus uses these words to describe their spiritual condition. Because despite how wealthy they were materially, he said, you're wretched, miserable, and poor, and you can't even see it. In other words, you might be materially well off, but he says, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to your walk with me and your relationship with me, you're actually bankrupt. Because church, let's get real for a moment. Real wealth is being wealthy in the Lord. Amen? Real wealth is being wealthy in a relationship with the richness of a walk with Christ. Because that is much more valuable than the material possessions of this world. Because you can lose everything in this world and still have Jesus. But if you lose Jesus, no matter how much you have accumulated in your life, materially, you have lost everything. And yes, Jesus wants us to become good stewards of what He's given us, but we must never become so self-sufficient that we don't see Him as the source of everything we have and need. Amen, somebody. Amen. Jesus also adds here, you're blind and you're naked. And again, a play on words here, because they were known for their ourselves, right? But Jesus says, well, you know, you're really known for helping other people with their eye infections, but let me tell you, as it relates to seeing my truth, you're blind. You can't see my truth. And you're naked. Even though you have this thriving industry of black wool that produces very expensive clothing, even though you are walking around with these beautiful clothes, clothes what's it? A coat, coat, yes. And all this fashion, in reality, you're blind before me. You are exposed before me, right? And we could relate that type of behavior to the, the type of world that we're living in now, where people are more concerned about the outward appearance than they are about what's going on on the inside. Right? It's a coat, not a cloak, okay? Because <laughs> I know my daughters are killing themselves right now. 
So Jesus complains about these things. And this is why he says here in verse 18, I counsel you. You're right. After all these complaints, listen to, to listen to the heart of Jesus. I counsel you to buy, me, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with ourselves that you may see him. Now, right away, we ask the question, how are people going to buy from him when he's just told them that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? How in the world are they going to buy anything from him in the state? And church, the answer to that is by faith. Nothing physical, but by faith. Isaiah chapter 55 actually has the answer where it says, Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and drink. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Because you see, church, I can have riches from God freely by faith. I may not have what the world has to offer, but I have what the Lord has to offer because I can come to him by faith. Amen. And church, what is Jesus saying here? Where he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. What he's saying is, I want you to have a pure faith. Right? That you may be rich in the real sense. Rich in the real sense, which is found in, a, in an authentic relationship with me, not in all the material wealth that you have. Where he says, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, the white garments is a picture of being clothed in righteousness. Amen? So he says, you know, you pride yourselves in this glossy black wool clothing, but what I really want for you is to be clothed in white garments, which means I want you to be clothed in my righteousness. And then finally, where he, anoints, where he says, anoint your eyes with ourselves that you may see what he's saying, in other words, is even though you have ourselves to cure your natural blindness, I want to anoint your eyes spiritually to heal you from your spiritual blindness. This is the heart of God. Because church, despite the fact that Jesus has nothing good to say about them, but has a lot of bad things to say about them, despite that fact, the Lord still has a heart for these people. You see, he's against the movement of Satan behind these apostate churches and the influence that it has, but he is still for these people. That's why he says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus doesn't completely write them off. There is still a place for them if they would just simply humble themselves and repent because he wants a relationship with them. And church, here's the thing. If, get a picture in your mind right now. Even the most wayward person you could ever think of right now in your mind that is so far from God. Right? Just get a picture in your mind, that person. Right? Christ died for that person and wants a relationship with them. Do you believe that? And that's why he adds there in verse 20 a very familiar verse that we often quote. Behold, I stand 
at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now just think about this for a moment. I want to pause and I want you to think about this for a moment. Even though this verse is, speaks to individual Christians, these Christians are still part of a church, right? And can you imagine that Jesus is outside the church trying to get in? I mean, he's the head of the church. He's Lord of the church. And how sad to think that some churches throughout history and even today have moved Christ outside the church where he's not that central anymore. Because listen up, everyone. If you come to this church or you go and visit another church, you should hear about Jesus. You should worship Jesus. And Jesus Christ should be preached and glorified in everything that happens in the church service from the beginning right to the end and every other ministry that takes place during the week. The biblical Christ and His inerrant word should never be compromised. Amen? And how sad to think that some churches have moved Jesus outside to allow space for a transitioning culture and other worldly influences to come in. And yet, he still stands at the door and knocks. This is applicable specifically to individuals because Jesus says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is an individual invitation. And symbolically, church, what is the door? The door is a representation of the human heart. You might say, well, hearts don't have doors, but metaphorically speaking, Jesus is saying, if you open the door of your heart, I will come in and I will dine with you. And to dine with someone means that you are going to be fellowshipping them, with them, right? That you want to fellowship with them. So get this, even though Jesus rebukes them for these things, if there is a willingness from the lukewarm and apostate Christian, and if he does it out of his own volition, Jesus says, I will come into your heart and I will fellowship with you. I'll become one with you in a covenantal relationship. Because in some ancient cultures, to dine with someone meant that you became one with them and made covenant with them as you crossed the threshold of the door of the house and you sat down with them and had a meal with them. And what a glorious picture that is of salvation. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I want to fellowship with you. But not just that, I want to forge a covenantal relationship with you, a relationship that is so pure that it is like gold refined in the fire. And church, how does Jesus get back into the church, into the apostate church? Through the hearts and lives of people who repent and turn to him and open the door of their hearts. You know, there's an amazing painting that was done by a man named Warner Solomon in 1942 who actually repainted a painting done by a man named Holman Hunt which is called Christ at Heart's Door. Put that painting up for us. This beautiful picture has become a classic of a garden scene and at the end of the garden there's a door and Jesus is knocking on the door which is an artistic representation of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You can keep it up there for a while. As history calls it, after Holman Hunt finished the painting, 
He invited the, some of his artistic friends to come and critique the painting. And one of them said to him, Holman, you forgot something. He said, what have I forgotten? He said, you forgot the doorknob. Right? Because if you look closely at that painting, there's no doorknob on the outside, right? But Holman Hunt replied and said, no, 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 this is intentional. The doorknobs on the inside, not on the outside, because Jesus didn't say, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you don't open it, I'm going to open it myself and come in. No. Because the idea is, if you really want a relationship with Jesus, yes, he's standing at the door knocking, but you have to open up the door and let him in. Amen. There's an old hymn that goes like this. It says, There's a Savior who stands at the door of your heart. He's longing to enter while let him depart. He has patiently waited so often before, but you must open the door. But you must open the door. God is doing all that he can to reach people. But people have to open the door from the inside, and they have to let him in. Amen. Church, that is true of every single one of us that have either come to the Lord or those that are still to come to him. Jesus closes off this letter to the church at Laodicea in verses 21 and 22 by saying, To him who overcomes, he says that to all the churches, right? To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, church, this is an amazing statement. Jesus delighting sharing his inheritance rights as the Son of God with all believers, and he longs to spend eternity with us. This is what he's saying here. Are you, are you absorbing this this morning? In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul tells us, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, my inheritance rights are yours, and I long to have fellowship with you and spend eternity with you. And so to Him who overcomes, this is the promise. There's still hope for these people. Because he doesn't write them off and say, well, I have nothing good to say, and therefore, there's no reward for you. He's saying, you know what? Yes, you've still got a long way to go, but there's still room to repent. Just shake your lukewarmness off, repent and turn to me, because my reward is that I want to have a relationship with you. Amen, somebody. Church, as we conclude this segment on the church at Laodicea, a few things I want you to do to just to take cognizance of and, and remember. Right? As we've been going through these letters, we must take these words of rebuke and exhortation. Right? Think about the rewards, the rebukes, and the commendations that Jesus has given to these different churches. Today, specifically, the Lord has shown us the dangers of lukewarmness and self-sufficiency and how they can lead us away from His truth and His perfect will for our lives. Let us remember, the, remember, therefore, that true wealth lies not in material possessions, 
but in a rich and authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. May we always be dependent upon Him, seeking His guidance and direction in all aspects of our lives. Let us clothe ourselves in His righteousness and seek the refining work of His Spirit in our hearts. And listen, even though most of us here today are saved, Jesus still stands at the door and knocks. He's knocking and inviting us into a deeper and more intimate fellowship with Him. It is up to us to open that door, to respond to His call, and to let Him reign as Lord over every single area of our lives. As we face the challenges of a transitioning culture and a world that seeks to pull us away from the truth, and even a stream of churches that are apostate in nature, let us remain steadfast in our faith. May we be like the church of Philadelphia, faithful and unashamed of the gospel, holding fast to the inerrancy of God's word and, and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let us be a church that is characterized by genuine believers, truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit and willing to contend for the truth of the gospel. May we be a church that is more concerned about obeying the Lord and saving souls than conforming to the culture around us. Let us be a part of the true church, a bride that has its lamps trimmed and burning brightly in preparation for the return of our bridegroom. May we heed the call to overcome, to endure, and remain faithful until the end. Let us be a church that listens to what the Spirit says and responds with wholehearted obedience. And church, in conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we continue to reveal Jesus through our lives, not just in the series, but every day of our journey as the body of Christ. Let us as the church embrace the prophetic messages of revelation, aligning our hearts and actions with God's word. With hope in our hearts, knowing that the Lord knows the way ahead and holds our future, let us press on as the church, shining in the light of Christ in a dark world and eagerly awaiting the day when we will be united with our Savior in eternity. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all in this process. Can we give the Lord a, a shout of praise for His word this morning?